Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. As I was preparing for this show, which deals with the question of free will and, and determinism, which is a position which says there is no free will, I was struck by how many popular songs, all of them about love, of course, depict the individual as helpless, as unable to change his or her mental state or emotional state, that, that there is kind of a sense that there's no free will. And in the Broadway musical tradition, this goes back to 1927, Kern and Hammerstein write the song, Can't Help Loving That Man of Mine, all the way through 2015 when Lin-Manuel Miranda writes Helpless for Angelica Schuyler to sing in Hamilton. Um, so that's sort of a moment in a place where we do think of ourselves as maybe not entirely possessed of free will. <laughs> I think you've all been in those relationships, right? So, so there's, I think at all times, a debate going on, particularly in the worlds of neuroscience and philosophy, uh, about to what degree free will exists or does not exist. Uh, it seems to have been joined very heartily of late uh, through the work of Robert Sapolsky, uh, who has most re- recently written Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. Uh, he's a determinist. He takes the position that there is no free will. Um, he may or may not be on the show. <laughs> today, which is like the most free will thing ever. He's supposed to be on right now, uh, and he's not here. We're fine with that because the other person we wanted to talk to, well, there's two other people we want to talk to today and will talk to. Uh, a little bit later in the show, we will talk to one of the creators uh, behind, or one of the people behind the ultimate exercise in free will. That would be the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Uh, that'll be the final segment in today's show as we move her up to the B. Uh, but right away, we're going to talk to uh, Kevin J. Mitchell, somebody who has in the in fact, in the past, debated uh, Sapolsky. Uh, Kevin J. Mitchell is an associate professor of genetics and neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin. His new book is Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. Uh, we should uh, point out that he is joining us, uh, I believe, today is St. Bridget's Day, so it is. Uh, and That's right. So he is taking time out from making a cross and marching through the city with it uh, to talk to us. Kevin J. Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Colin. Thanks for having me. So maybe the place to begin is not with this book, but with your prior book, um, which I believe was called Innate, uh, how, yes. the, how the Wiring of Our Brains Shapes Who We Are. So that would seem to point us in a kind of more deterministic direction, at least initially. You know, the premise of this book is that we are not blank slates. We start with some circuitry that we did nothing to choose. Um, yeah. So this is a little bit of a pivot. Um, maybe explain the process from that book to this book. Yeah. Yes. Thanks very much. So the previous book, um, Innate, was how about how our brains get wired, about the idea that there is such a thing as a universal human nature or a sort of kind of canonical human nature, but that we all have variations on that 
on that nature. So because we have differences in our genes, because there are differences in the way our brains develop, we're not blank slates. We do have some predispositions. And I, yeah, when I was giving talks about that book, I would often get this question, uh, you know, what does this mean for free will? If I didn't choose the way my brain is wired, I can't, I can't choose to be another way. And that's affecting my behavior, then how free am I? And that was really part of the the impetus to um, get into the topic of free will and ask about, you know, what does, what does neuroscience and psychology and physics and these other sciences actually have to say on the topic? And um, ultimately, you know, I think where, where I come down is that we, we don't have to have these kind of absolutist positions where you either have absolute free will, completely free of any prior causes whatsoever, including your own personality, um, or at the other extreme, you, there's absolutely zero free will and we never make any decisions whatsoever. I, I think there's a middle ground where, of course, our personality and our experiences and other things inform the decisions that we make, uh, but we still have some control over that and we have some scope. There's some options are open to us and within those options, we really do choose in the moment what to do. Um, yeah, and, and so um, maybe a thing that we need to do in the early stages here is define free will. It may mean a number of different things to a number of different yeah. people. So say what it means to you. Yeah, it does. So free will, I don't really like hard and fast definitions. That kind of sounds unscientific, but I think if you, if we, if we had an agreed on definition, we wouldn't be having the debate probably. So the phenomenon that I want to explain is the fact that we seem to be able to make decisions. We have some conscious or subconscious control over our actions. Uh, we make choices and we do things for reasons. So we have rational control of our behavior to the point where we can explain our reasons to each other. You know, it's not the case that they're completely opaque to us. We can think about our reasons. We can talk about them. And so all of that, I think, is, is the phenomenon that I think we can refer to as free will without necessarily all of the metaphysical baggage that comes along with that term. We should say this whole battleground has its own uh, terminology. So yeah. uh, would you consider yourself a compatibilist? No, um, I'm not. So, so let me say one of the sort of sternest challenges to the idea that we could be making choices is that the universe itself, all of every, all of physical matter in the universe, and you and I are made of physical stuff, right? We've got atoms and molecules and particles in our brains uh, and the rest of our body. So they, they can't violate the laws of physics. So th this idea of determinism is that given any state of a physical system at a given time, the laws of physics, the low-level laws of like quantum field theory and stuff like that, will automatically determine one only one future state, right? So there's a single future timeline that actually goes forward and backward. Nothing ever could change, right? There's no choices or possibilities in that kind of a universe. And some people argue that, first of all, some people just accept that premise. I, I don't. I think physics doesn't say that. But if you accept that premise, then you have one of two choices, I think. Either you're skeptical of free will, as I just said, you can't be making choices if possibilities don't exist, or you can mount this kind of argument that, yeah, it, you know, we don't have real choices, but things are so complicated. You're such a complicated physical system that the causation of what happens is still in you. It's just that, the, it's, just that it's inevitable, 
and um, and and we can still kind of assign moral responsibility to people. Right. For just, what they just, do. just to go back to the physics thing, I mean, kind of Newton yeah. sets sets up that idea of the of the universe and of existence itself as this sort of spring that's unwinding, 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 unwinding. Yes. But the, the spring is there, and and Einstein essentially buys into this. This certainly at the beginning, it's really I yeah. think Heisenberg who throws the biggest monkey wrench in there. I mean, he posits an uncertainty. He says, like, if you look at an electron, it changes its position. So either you're going to price that all of, all of that, all of that uncertainty, all of that looking at electrons and moving them around simply by perception into your spring, or you're going to concede that there are in fact multiple outcomes. There's forks in the road yeah. of the universe. Absolutely, and I think so. So yes, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle says that the you know certain values of um, parameters like the position and the momentum of a subatomic particle can't both exist with infinite precision at the same time, and that gives some some indeterminacy. And I think that's a better word for the principle, the indeterminacy principle, because it's not it's not actually about what you can know. It's that the universe doesn't know, right? There, it just, there just isn't a defined state of a system. So the whole premise of what I just said, that you start with a defined system at a given moment, and then the laws of physics take it from there, can't work if the system doesn't have a, uh, you know, isn't defined with infinite precision. And so that's at the quantum level. But actually, even at the classical level, the same thing is true in the sense that in any given moment in the universe there it, it has you know the information that describes the state of the universe but it can't have all of the information that describes every possible future state because there's not enough room in the universe to hold all that information so that what that means is that the future really is open mm. it's radically open in fact and that that flips the script of the debate. So rather than asking, rather than accepting determinism and then saying, well, where could this freedom come from? Instead, we just accept what physics shows, I think, that that there is some indeterminacy, some indefiniteness in in the world, especially in the future states of the universe. And then you can say, well, that look, the freedom comes for free. Now we have to ask a different question. Where does the control come from? Right? How does an organism faced with this wide open future make happen what it wants to happen right and so, that's exactly where the evolution of of control systems especially nervous systems comes into play all right so i, I want to hit the pause button there for just a second and we're going to come right back to it but we should acknowledge also this is a centuries it's a millennia old question certainly yes. sophocles and ethically and aeschylus are kind of determinists right <laughs> your your yeah. fate is foretold at your birth you can't change it mm -hmm. you're going to wind up uh having sex with your mother and murdering your father no matter what <laughs> you do even if your entire life purpose is to avoid doing that it's going to happen anyway so we sort of see that and and then yes it scrolls forward we add more and more science to it more and more thought to it um but some of our greatest thinkers even uh in contemporary times have been confronted with it. I'm going to give an example right now that I think will resound. I mean, this is certainly a reference to a great thinker. This is A1, Dylan. And now we can continue our debate from yesterday. When we left off, Calvin and Tanya were arguing that free will is an illusion. If you ask me, humankind has freedom, but a freedom fraught with paradoxes. Freud shows how childhood shapes our subconscious mind, but this helps us to think for ourselves. Very good, Ian. 
That's from The Simpsons. And of course, Bart Simpson is one of our great thinkers. But but yes, so let's go back to this idea because your, fundament, your fundamental argument, if I grasp it, is that when you look at life itself, life from the bottom rung upward, assuming that there is a mm-hmm. direction like that, it looks like a project to, to develop organisms that in fact do make choices, that do, even at their most primitive level, um, have the capacity to do one thing instead of doing another. Yeah, I would say, well, so let me phrase it a little differently. What I would say is that life uh, is, uh, so living organisms are causal agents in the world. They have causal power to act in the world in a, in a way, first of all, they have to because uh, to stay alive, they have to be striving, right? They have to be doing work to take in energy and keep themselves organized in a certain way through time. That, that's what it means to be alive and to be a self is, is to continue that pattern through time. And that means they have to uh, work, they have to, uh, and it pays, it's adaptive to be able to kind of model the world and understand the world to react to things in the world, but also to anticipate things in the world and to mount some kind of an adaptive action to it. So natural selection has ensured that that living organisms that are good at that have continued to persist and evolve. And what we see across evolution is this elaboration and sophistication of that machinery. You go from single-celled organisms, which can react to things in the environment, to multicellular organisms where they have to evolve nervous systems and muscles to control their own bodies, um, sophisticated sensory equipment, and then lots and lots of internal processing. Because, you know, one view of this is to say, well, okay, sure, you can uh, you can make a robot like that. You know, you could make a robot that responds to things, and so, uh, and you know, where does it really have choice? And what we see is that as we get more and more complicated, is that we ha- we have to take into account all kinds of variables at once. You know, we're not just waiting for an isolated stimulus that we have a hardwired response to. Instead, we have to assess a whole situation. We have to take into account what we've learned from experience, all the sorts of tunings of these different parameters that are that are part of that cognitive system. And then we really have to think in the moment. It's not prefigured, it's not pre-stated what the that there's only one possible solution to this to this process. Really, we're trying to figure out what's the best thing to do, given incomplete information, a dynamic environment, and, and finite time. So we have to do this under pressure, right? We, we don't have the luxury of just waiting for these computations to run. And, of course, with noisy components, right? All the bits of neurons are jiggly, wet, messy stuff jittering around the place. <laughs> so uh, the, the idea that there could only be one possible outcome in every situation that you encounter, it, it just doesn't fit with what we know about how nervous systems work. Right. So let's talk about that, too. The human uh, brain has 100 100 billion neurons and I believe 100 trillion synapses connecting them. Yeah. Um, We have more neurons in our brain than there are stars in the Milky Way. Um, Let's talk about a a simpler creature. Uh, This is a creature called C. elegans. C. elegans has, by contrast, instead of 100 billion neurons, 302 neurons that form about 5,000 chemical synapses. You probably have some C. elegans right there in your lab somewhere. Um, And yet this incredibly simple creature is capable of neurodevelopment. Uh, it is. It has some kind of, of plasticity uh, in its its navigation, uh, in its foraging traits. Uh, it, it's able. It seems to, as though to kind of change based on kind of 
what it quote unquote learns. And to your point about robots, you probably know this too. They, uh, because in fact it's so simple, they've been able to kind of encode all of the neurons, and they created a motherboard that kind of simulated at least some of the some of the neural processes of C. elegans and put it in a robot. And the robot started just doing a lot of C. elegans things, which could mm. prove one thing or the other, really. But I think part of your point is if you can go from 302 neurons to 100 billion, you're really going to have some pretty sophisticated choice making machinery uh, yeah. in, in the human brain. But say more about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, so even in a C. elegans, you've got these 302 neurons and there are some sensory neurons that detect a bunch of different kinds of things in the world, like lots of different chemicals that they can smell. And they're very sensitive to touch. So this little worm just um, lives in the soil. It eats bacteria. So it has to be able to sense uh, food and other things. Um, it moves around by wriggling forward or wriggling backwards. It has a few other behaviors, but it has a pre pretty limited repertoire of behaviors that it can do at any moment, right? And the important thing is it can only do one at a time. So it has to have some system to choose between that. So it's got sensory neurons, it's got motor neurons that can enact those behaviors. And then in the middle, there's a very few layers of what are called interneurons that sit in the middle between sensors and, and motors. And what they do is they integrate a bunch of information all at the same time. And they're also, as you said, capable of learning. So C. elegans can learn from recent experience. They can learn actually from early experience. They can adapt to different kinds of environments. So the challenge for any worm at any given moment is not just to respond to an isolated stimulus, but to figure out what's out in the world and what should I do about it based on my own memories and experience and also based on my own internal state because you know a worm might be well-fed or not well-fed, and that, that's going to change its decision based on a, foo a food cue, for example, right? So even in a simple organism, it's already doing this kind of holistic processing. You, you can't point to just a single part of the nervous system and say, this neuron is the one that, that made the decision. The, the whole organism makes the decision using all that machinery. And I would say the same thing for us, right? Except what happens in us, uh, as you go, nervous systems get more and more complicated, is you get more and more levels, those internal levels of the interneurons. So you're separating sensation from immediate obligate action. And instead of that, you've got all this internal space for processing and really for cognition, for thinking about uh, you know, weighing all these different variables that you're trying to optimize over all at the same time. You're trying to manage your behavior, not just be reactive, but be proactive. You're trying to guide um, your behavior by having goals that then inform what you should do in any moment, because to achieve that goal, you have to sustain behavior through time. So it, it, you just get a much, much richer picture of um, cognition and what it's for in controlling behavior and much deeper autonomy of that, right? It's much more the individual proactively driving its own behavior as opposed to this reactive stimulus response machine. All right. We're talking to Kevin J. Mitchell, Associate Professor of Genetics and Neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin. We're going to keep him on for another segment here, so stay with us. His new book is Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. We'll come back with more of him after this.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. Metacognition, indeed, that's one of the things that Kevin Mitchell, as you just heard him say a little bit uh, earlier, uh, points to the existence of free will uh, in our brains. If we can think about thinking and think about thinking about thinking, it seems as though we're probably not prisoners uh, of biology and social conditioning. Kevin J. Mitchell is an associate professor of genetics and neuroscience at Trinity College, Dublin. His new book is Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us a Free Will. So, Kevin, I'm going to um, briefly kind of almost pretend to impersonate Robert uh, Sapolsky. Uh-huh. I, uh, put, good, good. Uh, I put on beard extensions, so my beard is now considerably longer <laughs> than it was at the beginning of the conversation. Um, so, no, uh, one of the things that he would be saying, and actually the reason that the two of you are sometimes put into the same orbit but moving in other directions, is advances of, in neuroscience, right? We yeah. can now look at the brain at a much more granular and nuanced level. And so you get these studies you know, I mean, going back even to the 1980s, you get these studies where people are told to make a hand gesture, uh, make a particular hand gesture and, and just do it any, at any given time while the brain's being scanned. And at least according to one interpretation, these are if people are keeping score at home, the Libet studies, um, that the, the, the movement of the hand precedes really the brain's uh, volitional decision to 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 move the hand so that ultimately what's happening instead, it is argued, is a kind of post hoc narration by the brain of something that's already really kind of happened at a neural level. Um, I'm sure you know way more of these studies than mm. I do. But I mean, say a little bit about how they work in, in one direction and or the other. Yeah. So, well, uh, let me just say generally, there's lots, of course, neuroscience is learning loads, right? Mm-hmm. We're learning huge amounts about how these different circuits in the brain work to enable us to make decisions about uh, the perceptual systems to infer what's out in the world about the systems that give us you know motivation and emotional control that that signal internal states that maybe are in a in a, a a state that we don't want them to be in that requires some corrective action, for example, that guides our behavior, um, about the systems that we use to evaluate, to simulate the possible outcomes of our of our actions so that we can um, figure out what one might be good or bad to do without actually having to try it out in the world, right? 
So we have all of these systems for doing that. And I think there's two ways of seeing it. One is to say, well, look, it's just those systems, right? You're not doing anything. It, you're just being pushed around by, by your parts, right? Those little neurons firing, that's the reason why you did something. And another way of seeing it is to, to not reduce everything to that level or, or isolate different components, but to say, no, it's the whole system acting all together. All these different parts of the brain are talking to each other in any moment, trying to decide, for, trying to let the organism decide, I should say, what's the best thing to do. So the neuroscience is just revealing the tools that we use, that we use to do that. It's not saying that the brain decides and then you do it. So those those libid experiments are very famous. Um, there's, I think, they're the most over extrapolated, <laughs> over interpreted experiments that I know of, frankly, because they just don't speak to the question in the first place. But also, there's tons of methodological reasons why they don't mean what people think they mean. But just to the first point, the the, the experiment, uh, the instructions in the experiment are to sit in this chair. You're hooked up to this machine that's recording EEG waves, brain waves, and the instruction is move your hand whenever the urge takes you, j literally just on a whim. Now, nothing about that is what we're interested in, right? That's not a deliberative decision. You're not rationally controlling your behavior for a reason, right? It just doesn't fit the criteria or the phenomena that I put, you know, free will as the thing that needs explaining. So um, effectively, what happens in that situation is that people allow some noisiness in their neural circuits to kind of accumulate to a certain level, an arbitrary sort of threshold to make the decision for them. But, that, but there's nothing general about that scenario. It's a very, very particular scenario when you don't care. Why should you care, right? You have no reasons for doing it any one time or another. And in fact, there was a really nice experiment that took the exact same setup same recording, same movement and everything. But rather than making it, uh, you know, in, making the person indifferent to what happens, they actually made it such that if you move your right hand versus your left hand, then a charity that you really liked got more money, right? So now the person does care. And there, the, the whole thing about your brain making the decision before you're consciously aware of it just doesn't arise. Those signals don't appear. So in a scenario where um, you don't, give a crap what you do uh sure let your let let some noisiness in your in your brain uh be the thing that that makes the decision in that moment although i will say you made the decision to do that right so you have control conscious control over allowing that process to happen right and so i assume you would also agree that i mean at the intersection of brain science and social science research we've learned also a lot about things that people do think are acts of it free will and maybe sort of complex and reasoned judgments that seem not to be um the other thing i do besides host this radio show at the, the, this time of year i'm teaching in the political science department and and mm -hmm. within political science researchers like drew weston have discovered that people make decisions about candidates based on you know like a a, a three second exposure to two photos sure. people make yeah. up their minds that way but their post hoc narration about that would be oh no i picked candidate x because he very closely aligns with my beliefs. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm a rational actor in making these decisions. How dare you? How dare yeah. you suggest that this is an eye blink decision? So I don't know. Interpret that from your point of view. Well, so what, I'm not making the case that we always act rationally with mm -hmm. full information in ways that we can describe even to ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 
what I'm suggesting is that we have the capacity to do that sometimes. Now, some, some people exercise that capacity much more than other people do. And of course, all of, it, all of us exercise it in some situations more than we do in other situations. So it's, it's again, it's, you know, it's not an absolutist kind of a thing. There are cer- certain circumstances where we have more cognitive control over our um, actions and other circumstances where we have less. And this is like, this is perfectly normal, right? I mean, it's commonplace to know, for example, that children have less control than adults do. They have less impulse control. They have poorer executive function. They can't plan as well. They can't um, guide their behavior over time in the same way. They can't uh, delay gratification and so on. And over time, those those skills and capacities uh, mature, right? And they develop. Um, So it's not an all or none kind of a thing. And of course, you know, in some circumstances, um, we, we may be highly constrained. We may be really hungry. We may be, as you said earlier, head over heels in love. Uh, our judgment may be clouded by all kinds of things. And circumstances around us may just uh, restrict the degrees of freedom that we have. And so, you know, I think, um, well, let me channel Robert uh, for a moment, given that he's not here. You know, Robert absolutely makes the important point that there are all all excuse me, that there are all kinds of prior influences on our behavior in any specific moment and also on our capacity for free behavior. So, you know, growing up in poverty, for example, your choices will have been limited drastically. You know, if you have certain um, genetic sort of profiles or makeup, you may be more or less impulsive, more or less uh, risk averse, more or less neurotic and so on. So all of those influences are real. Um, Where I differ with Robert, is that he would say all of those influences conspire to completely determine the outcome in any moment, whereas I would say, no, they're just influences. They're not determinants either singly or collectively. They still allow you as a whole entity to um, have the capacity to make decisions. Again, whether you exercise that in any given moment is another question. Yeah, I'd like to just uh, lodge an objection on behalf of children uh, uh-huh. for what you just <laughs> said, uh, because I'm sure that seems very true uh, in Dublin. Here in America right now, we have somebody who has been president and who is running for president who, in terms of restraint, makes the average five-year-old child look like a model of self-regulation. <laughs> so That's true. I just want to just put in a word for children, but also say, you know, we're probably headed for a trial with this guy. His name is Trump, uh, yeah. in which case, at which point, as he's often the case in American justice. I'm thinking, I don't know, I haven't tried a case in Dublin, but um, you know, the, the term mens rea comes up. What was the state uh-huh. of mind? Uh, w- yeah. what, what, what capacity did the person have to make choices and what choices did that person make? If we were to go with a fully Sapolskyan deterministic system, I don't even know, you know how you can have that conversation. And it seems kind of necessi- ne- necessary for the maintenance of a society to yeah. ascribe blame for certain choices. But yeah, give me your take there. Well, I absolutely agree. So first of all, I think, yes, it is necessary to be able to uh, have a sense of of responsibility for our, for our actions, right? Um, and I would say, first of all, that if you're going to get rid of the notion of responsibility, the notion of rights goes right with it. So that's a rights and responsibilities are a, are a package deal. Um, and you can't really have one without the other. So the idea that... Um, the idea that we should take people's circumstances into account in judging their behavior is perfectly good. But if you go to the absolutist version that, that Robert takes, that makes no sense. What do you do? 
what are you doing? What are you comparing? Nobody has any free will in any circumstance. So why does it matter what their circumstances are? So um, to me, that's just an extreme position that we don't need. And in fact, the the justice system already perfectly well does, well, I won't say perfectly, but but does take people's circumstances and history into account. It does take things like their age into account. It takes um, things like psychiatric conditions into account where we say, no, this person was not responsible. They're, they're not uh, culpable you know, due to that reason and so on. So um, yeah, I think our justice system is actually fairly well set up to take account of those things in a nuanced way, right? Not an absolutist kind of a way. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I, I, even yeah. even the notion of rehabilitation is predicated on a certain plasticity, uh, on the ability of uh, of reaching a, a state with with a person where he or she can make other choices besides the one that that person has been making in, in the past. There is kind Absolutely. of just a, kind of a notion of it, at least, and in a short time. I mean, if we're the product of fifty seven years of life plus you know thousands of years of evolution uh, and biology, it seems unlikely if we don't have any other component than that that you could put somebody you know, in a prison in Germany for a couple of years and have them come out, you know, a, a much closer to model citizen. Uh, we we got to be capable of, of making somewhat different choices. But look, um, I I have run out of hope that I will ever do a show in the next two years that does not veer into the lane of AI, no matter what uh-huh. I do a show. I think if I do a show about, yeah. about knitting, there will be an AI component. Yes. I don't know. There's just, you can't get away. But for you, this is bearing down upon you if it's not there already, right? We're, yeah. we're, we're seeing these large language models with these high predictive capacities that have the equivalent, it seems anyway, uh, of a synaptic network that is just knitting together, I use knitting, uh, knitting mm-hmm. together a, a whole bunch of different uh, sources of information into what appear to be complex choices. So I don't know. I mean, what does that mean to you? Where are you likely to go with that idea? Well, it's one of these topics where this kind of esoteric academic debate around free will and agency really hits the road, right? Uh, Because we are now in a circumstance where we can at least envision building systems that, um, you know, that could have enough kind of cognitive sophistication to be able to potentially make choices. Now, the the large language models don't. uh, They don't have agency. They're not the right kind of thing. They don't interact with the world. They don't have the right kind of relationship with the world. um, And they don't have um, the right kind of uh, architecture, I think, to enable that. But we know, you know, from evolution, we talked about going from simple things like worms up to humans, that there's a trajectory of complexification of these systems that allow organisms, uh, agents, right? They could be artificial agents to make sense of the world, to keep themselves alive, to scaffold all kinds of other goals and, and so on and decide things. So I don't, I don't see any reason in principle why we couldn't build Uh, an artificial system that would be quite different from these large language models, but that would be effectively an agent, right? It would have autonomous causal power in the world. And if we can, then I think the really important question is whether we should. 
Yeah, and I think there's also, and I'm not positing a a ghost in the machine narrative here at all, but as you look at what the large language models do right now, there often comes a point where they do something that's just kind of weird, right? They just just exhaust all the information they have, uh, and they come to what feels like a false choice, one that doesn't really conform with human experience. They just, there's just like stuff that they don't know. And I guess you could just put it at that quantifiable level. But there are probably people who would argue, well, no, there's a humanness uh, that informs some of the decisions we make, some of the there things we is. say. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, in a sense, I think that the, that what they, it's not so much that things that they don't know, it's that, it, that you see evidence that they don't understand, right? They don't have a good sense of causal relations in the world because they have never had to intervene on the world and develop that kind of information. All they have, they don't have a model of the world at all, really. They, what they have is a model of words about the world. And because they have that model and because the words come from us and the the relations between the words um, convey what we have learned about the causal nature of the world, they're very good at making it look like they understand the world because they're regurgitating these sorts of um, novel rearrangements of things that humans might say, right? That's their whole thing is to make a sensible sounding utterance, but they don't have any sort of deeper understanding beyond that, at least uh, to my mind. So um, there's a real question there. It's like, well, what is understanding? What does that even mean? How do how does how does a living organism get understanding about the world? And um, if we can kind of formalize that or operationalize it in some way so that it's not vague, then maybe we could see. Well, actually, all, you know, a system just needs this, this, and this, and this kind of relation to the world, and and to be able to learn from its own interactions with the world in order to figure out causal relations. And then it'll have this kind of a model that is, um, you know, much more actionable and and usable for an agent as opposed to a thing that just has to blurt out um, (laughs) words. All right. Kevin J. Mitchell, this has been so much fun. Associate Professor of Genetics and Neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin, where St. Bridget's Day is almost over, I just realized, because of the time difference. It is, yeah. yeah. His new book is Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 at ctpublic.org slash Colin, which is also where you can sign up for our delightful free fortnightly newsletter, The Newsletter. You can listen to any episode on any podcast app. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. All right. So today's show is produced by the maestro. The technical producer, I mean, is the maestro. Uh, that would be Dylan Reyes. Uh, the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, uh, who, in a state of great nervousness, has produced this particular episode. Uh, and <laughs> and I don't think there's anything else to say uh, beyond the fact that, you know, in the world of public radio now, uh, you could go to almost any station in America, any show, and you'll hear people talking about the Tyson pivot. And the Tyson pivot is when you have a conversation about one thing, and then you make a slight adjustment 
towards something else. And we tried to do that here when we were discussing it in meetings. I take full credit for this idea. I said, well, we should talk about the Choose Your Own Adventure books because that's the ultimate exercise in free will, although over a somewhat predetermined landscape. Here to help us do that is Shannon Gilligan, the CEO and publisher of the Choose Your Own Adventure series, which has been in print for more than 40 years. Welcome to our conversation, Shannon. Thank you, Colin. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, an early instance of making the wrong choice and choose your own invention, um, adventure. Excuse me. When these books were first proposed, drafted up by Mr. Packard, um, it, all of the big publishing houses rejected it. He had to go to a small publisher in Vermont, right? Talk about a bad choice. This is what the what like the fourth most successful children's book series in the history of the world and publishers didn't get that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was new. It was new and it like it kind of broke the mold and um uh you know, I guess it was a it was a hard choice to make. Right. Ultimately they made it. Ultimately Ray uh Ari Montgomery, uh the co-founder, um uh, he brought it to Bantam and mm. Bantam was starting a kids division and um they didn't have a children's editor yet, so it was actually an adult editor that bought it and looked at it and said kids would love this and she was right. <laughs> Now, there are some people who are listening to the show right now who just kind of chronologically fall through the cracks. They weren't kids at the right time. They didn't have kids at the right time. They didn't have grandkids at the right time. So you might have to just just very quickly in a thumbnail explain what the Choose Your Own Adventure books are like. How do they work? Okay. So um, every book starts with – they're written in the second person about you. And in the first couple of pages, you are – given parameters of who you are. You might be a scientist um, in a rat tail canoe going up the Amazon looking for a cure for cancer. You might be a scientist in a miniaturization lab. You might be a journalist in in the Yucatan um, investigating some strange deaths. You know, it, it, it can be any of those things. And then there will be some sort of adventure or mission defined. And then um, you know, you're given the job, the agency, I love that word, um, to um, move forward and try to complete the mission. So this does really introduce children. I mean, children are in some respects just icons of free will in the sense that they want their, <laughs> they want their ice cream and they don't see why they can't have their ice cream. But but this is a more nuanced and sophisticated thing. And, and it does seem as though that's one of the imprinting qualities of the book, right? That children grow up remembering this whole system where they, they saw that choices have consequences. Um, yeah, no, exactly. I think that um, I think that I should add that, you know, you, you make choices and you different choices and you keep on coming up with choices and you have endings. And so, um, yeah, I think that children, um, I mean, I think of choose as almost like a, um, a practice, a a choice making practice device, right? You, you get to like make lots of choices and try on lots of persona and you, and, and you like, you get to, you get to make a lot of bad choices, um, or risky choices that you might not make in your own life. So, like, there's sort of these two interesting stages in a Choose Your Own Adventure book. First, you're given agency, and then you're, you know, forced to make all these choices. And um, and sometimes um, one of the, there are very few rules that we have internally for writing one, but one of them is that you cannot, um, like, if you make a the good choice, um, like, you turn the money back in, um, you know, to the bank that you found, you know, outside in a bag. Um, it doesn't always end up with a good ending. <laughs> 
you, you <laughs> might not, you know, you might not, <laughs> you might not get like right. the reward you deserve. You might, in fact, get accused of stealing the money. Or you so, need, so. you need that money for a kidney or something. So yes. Right. So right. I, w- I was going <laughs> to have you, I was going to have you talk uh, through the inside UFO fifty four forty because it's just a dream that Lily Tyson has every single night of her life. But uh, rather than do that, let's go to one of the classics, uh, House of Danger by R. A. Montgomery. Yeah. You want to give us sort of yeah. an example of how this choice system works. Um, are you going to read it to me, or am I going to pull this up from memory? Oh, well, um, is there evil uh, in a glass house built on the site of a terrible Civil War prison? Uh, right. this, this is one case that maybe you shouldn't take, despite your successes as a young detective. The house and its missing owner have haunted you more than any other case. Unimaginable dangers, including alternate worlds and counterfeiting baboons, await you. So the reader, that, who is probably a child, is expected to navigate all that, Right. Right. Yes. And I mean, that you know, I'll tell you, is there anything more exciting? Like if you're in fourth grade and <laughs> you get to, you know, you're, you're, you're a detective, you get a cryptic message on your phone, you go out to a house, there's all kinds of strange, um, uh, potentially um, very, um, very scary um, clues. Um, and you, and you pursue them because you've, you know, you can't get the sound of that desperate person begging for help um, on your phone out of your head. So, you know, there's just, you know, it's just like there are not many books for fourth and fifth graders um, with those with those kinds of setups. Although I will give House of Danger credit for being one of the looniest. I mean, it, <laughs> you know, it just every it has every single thing you could possibly imagine, as you say, baboons, a tildan, um, counterfeiting. I mean, where does that come from? Um, the ghosts of the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> the Civil War prisoners, you know, it just goes on and on. And all of this, mind you, is in um, a fancy um, uh, suburb of Boston. Yes. So, <laughs> so yeah. The, the, so, the question I have is, is there a wrong way to read these books? There is some talk of cheating. Cheating being you want a certain outcome. You're the kid. You're the reader. You want things to come out a certain way. So uh, they might try different strategies to get to a certain outcome. Um, how, yeah. How it's do you keeping your finger in the book, right? Yeah. <laughs> Pretending you didn't take that ending. Right. Yeah. Is, does that yeah. does that bother anybody or is that just part of the exploratory oh my God. quality? No, no. I think that that's very much um, part of the point. Part of the point. Yeah. For sure. I, one of the one of the real philosophical underpinning pinnings uh, of choose was um, that everybody has the right to fail, and in many ways, Ray wrote to give people the opportunity to examine that and have fun with that. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 it, like to think differently, mm-hmm. to think different. Um, the there's a there as we as time has gone on, we have gotten we we regularly get you know uh, fan letters. Um, from uh, kids who grew up on shoes. And some of them are quite moving um, where people, you know, have really reached a dark place in their life. I mean, I, we've gotten a letter from a prison. Um, and um, and they talk about remembering Choose Your Own Adventure um, in like their darkest hour and um, going back and sometimes reading, but sometimes just remembering how it made them feel and how they could step take two steps back and make a different choice. And you know that I, I just think that's that's so um, so terrific and so interesting. I'm guessing the one from the prisoner you don't use in your promotional materials. You know, <laughs> read these books and you could wind up like prisoner one five seven eight four nine two. So, um, how about the? Are there rules to creating them? I mean, not they're not all written by the same person. I 
encountered the right. ideas. That's, that, I mean, that, from that, the beginning, yeah. that was another thing, you know, that it wasn't like just this monolithic, you know, Carolyn Keene or, you know, kind of um, uh, fictitious writer that was um, pushing these out. Um, you know, there are very few rules. There's got to be a lot of energy and um, what we call internally um, kind of narrative velocity in the openings. And because it's, you know, it's got to carry through many stories and, you know, that are all believable um, or not believable, but, you know, that that are compelling, compelling you forward. So um, that's a rule. Um, they are strictly written in the second person you. Um, the, um, the, uh, you know, there's really nothing, um, nothing out of bounds though. Once you follow those two things, I think that, you know, those, those two basic rules, oh, there's a, there's a consistent universe rule. So you can't, you can't go down, run down a hallway and, um, you know, go to the left and find a golf course, um, uh, outside that door. And then later in the same book, run down the hallway, go to the left and find a beauty parlor. Mm. That, like, so there is a consistent universe rule, but that's kind of, you know, you, you map out out the story and you kind of um read that through and ed editors catch that they're paid to catch <laughs> those those inconsistencies is it really true that poets are especially good at this yes it's very interesting to us but as we look for new writers uh the um Chuska was formed to bring back the series um, circa 2006-7, and um, we published a bunch of the original books, but then we started to publish new books, and, and we're looking for new writers. And it was so interesting to us that um, it, 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 like, it started with one person, just randomly, we hired someone who pulled in a gave a proposal that was terrific and we hired them to write a book and they had friends who were poet they were a poet and they had friends who were poets and um i just think poets are taught to look think non-linearly or to you know write without the three-act structure people who are really devoted to the three-act structure i think have more trouble writing mm. choose your own adventure and you, sure. you have uh unleashed a concept onto the world that is not confined to Chusco anymore. And I know Chusco uh, had some legal words with Black Mirror uh, for an episode that they did that featured a book that was Choose Your Own Adventure but wasn't Chusco. But, you know, there's also, I don't know, I very much enjoyed uh, the Kimmy Schmidt versus the Reverend uh, series on Netflix where you could choose uh, different outcomes and things like that. And, and Netflix seems to really like this. They must just have the software for it. There's a Carmen Sandiego special, To Steal or Not to Steal. Um, uh-huh. It must uh -huh. be sort of a good feeling too to think, wow, you just you introduced a concept that didn't really exist, and and now it's just you know going all over the place. The um well, okay, historically it did, but um it was more um it was just um somewhat episodic. There was actually a, a series in the 1930s about dating that had been written by two women, hmm. and um and then Julio Cortazar wrote um a novel Hopscotch and and which was published in '64 and. He won the Nobel in 66. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, Ray Buela, Hopscotch is uh, its English um, title. Um, and um, it was cited as, you know, his masterpiece. And that's interactive. That's multiple. Yeah. It's not multiple ending, but you you ramble around the story and you choose where you want to learn more about something, you know, at the end of each segment. Um, there were a couple of series in the 70s, um, uh, you know, the, uh, one was published in the UK called Trackers. So there had been interactive fiction. And I just think that Choose Your Own Adventure was, uh, was something that was super well executed in the right place at the right time. And for kids, I think is important too. And hey, for children, hey, yes. Shannon they Gilligan, were open to that. Shannon, they were open to that. Yeah. Shannon Gilligan, we have to stop. This is fascinating. But CEO and publisher of the Choose Your Own Adventure series, been in print for more than 40 years. We will say goodbye. We goodbye, goodbye. Uh, and thanks for listening today. You did so of your own free will. 